The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you'll uh, join me now in turning in God's Word with me to uh, Genesis, where we were this morning, in chapter 39. Genesis chapter 39. And join with me or follow along with me as I read uh, this text of Scripture. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and he put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for uh, for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concerns about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself. Because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were there in the house, she called him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. 
But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's, and Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the, um, who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he, uh, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And when, whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Well, praise God for the reading of his word in your midst. The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. So folks, um, whenever you're dealing with a text of scripture, and one of the things, of course, I love to do is uh, expository preaching, because the Bible says preach the word. That's the, that's the charge that is given to a pastor, teacher, a minister of the word, <clears throat> is to preach the word. Now, uh, normally, that's what we call, there's a phrase out there called lectio continua. In other words, you take the text and you work through it continuously, verse by verse, or section by section, and of course, that's what we just did for the last year or so in First Peter and what I propose that we'll be doing this year in the book of Romans, unless the Lord uh, indicates or directs otherwise. And uh, we've done it in the Gospel of Matthew. We've done it in Obadiah. We've done it in Zechariah. We've done it uh, in Genesis. We have done it uh, in numerous books of the Bible. And we have also done something called topical expository, which is what we're doing right now under Lifestyle Stewardship is taking key texts of Scripture that deal with the topic of Christian stewardship as a way of life. And so I was led to not the first Sunday is to kind of lay out the basics of stewardship and then apply it to Christian stewardship. And then I just felt this last Lord's Day, uh, is there a better example of stewardship in the Bible than, in fact, Joseph? And uh, so I want this is what I call stewardship in real time. And let's see how that matches up with Christian stewardship and what we can see in it. And that's what we did this morning. But, you know, whenever you look at a text and exposition, God, God is able to multitask. And it's amazing how he multitasks in the contours of the messages that you find in the word of God. And now uh, you want to always honor the word of God that points to the majesty of Christ. Did not Christ himself, beginning with Moses, that would have been the book of Genesis, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained himself in all the scriptures. It was Jesus that told us, uh, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but they bear witness of me. And it was Jesus that told, um, it was Jesus that uh, informed us, uh, that um, uh, informed us that the word of God uh, bore witness of him in its majesty. And it was Paul that then tells us, continuing the things you've learned and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings of the Old Testament that are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. 
salvation through faith in Christ. So that Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. And there's this glorious message of the preeminence of Christ as creator, redeemer, and sustainer that runs through the tapestry of God's word. And it's really glorious. And I tried to maybe point that out to you because Joseph takes on an unofficial uh, typology of Jesus. He is an anticipation of Jesus. Here is Jesus, who was the faithful steward. Father, all whom you've given me, I lose not one, but raise them up on the last day. There is the faithful steward. And then Joseph becomes an anticipation of him. It's through Joseph that the covenant people of God are going to be secured in the land of Egypt according to God's promise for 400 plus years until they're mobilized, multiplied, and matured to go in back to the promised land and then drive out the Amalekites and the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and all of them once their iniquity has come to fulfillment. And it is Joseph that is the steward of God to bring the people into this land for such a season. And it is Joseph whom God is using in a glorious way as a steward, uh, a steward in not only in his family as Abraham used him to keep watch over his brothers. That caused a number of problems, but that's what he did. And then, and then as he became a steward in Potiphar's house when he was sold there in slavery. And then when he was tried and put into prison, he became a steward, an overseer of the prison. And then he comes out of the prison and he moves into the palace of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh puts all of Egypt underneath his charge. And therefore, and he says, I have, I need, have you ever noticed in each case, whether it's Abraham the father, Potiphar the guard, the captain of the guard, or whether it's the warden of a prison, or whether it's Pharaoh, his stewardship was such that the master who allocated his responsibilities, who allocated his resources, had no concern because of how he did what he did. And I wanted you to see that, that stewardship in real time, and also to see Jesus. And uh, because you see this pattern of Jesus, how did Joseph get done what he was called to do as a steward in the providence of God? He was humbled and then exalted. He was humbled in a pit and then exalted in Potiphar's house. He was humbled in Potiphar's house and in a prison and then exalted in a prison. He was humbled in the prison as he was forgotten and then he was exalted into the palace as a prince. Humiliation to exaltation to achieve his stewardship. You also see him rejected by his own as Jesus. You see him abandoned by twelve, even as Jesus. You see him uh, betrayed. You see him. Uh, you see him uh, disrobed. You see him in a pit. You see him falsely accused and tried and condemned and sentenced. And so you see the picture of Jesus there. So. 
I was able to, uh, and just in anticipation of giving you a glimpse of that this morning, and then get digging down a little deeper into this matter of stewardship in real time, but there was another message that went through it, and I confess to you, for various multiple reasons, this other message of Joseph as a living example of how to deal with temptation in general, pursue holiness, and to deal with sexual temptation in particular. As I kept going back and then weeding it out of the Sunday morning sermon, I just felt I couldn't weed it out because this is another stewardship issue, isn't it? The steward has to be a steward of his testimony. And so again, you can see this in real time. Now let me go ahead and say to you, I plan on God willing dealing with spiritual warfare as we move through the Sunday evening series on eternity. And I hope to be back to this matter of spiritual warfare, Satan's attack upon the believer, which will bring us back to temptation and particularly the issue of sexual purity and um, and fleeing sexual temptation. So we're going to be back. And when we come back, we're going to look at it a little bit more precise, a little bit more in terms of the pattern that the scripture gives to us. <clears throat> but I couldn't resist looking at a case of a man who maintained his witness under adversity at great cost in real time. And so I just, I thought, here are lessons in a real life, in real time, that have got to be helpful for me and got to be helpful for you. This is also important for me for two other reasons. Will you keep your finger there in Genesis chapter 39 where we are? And would you go with me? Would you go with me uh, to, <clears throat> would you go with me to First um, Thessalonians, to First Thessalonians chapter 4? First Thessalonians chapter 4. Can I give you two basic principles? Let me give you two. Here's one. The pe- now listen to this, please. The people of God, any and every believer, who seek to be faithful as stewards of the manifold blessings of God in their life, any believer who seeks to be faithful as a steward for Christ, that believer, which I hope refers to you, that believer must know, must be warned, must be prepared. You will be a target for Satan, his schemes, his snares, and those who willingly serve him, like Potiphar's wife. Anyone who is seeking to be faithful to Christ as a steward of all that God has entrusted to you, wanting to grow as a steward, wanting to be faithful, wanting to be productive, I wish I could tell you Satan will leave you alone while you're in progress, but I can't. Here's what I can tell you, though. Whatever Satan is doing to stop you and thwart you, God will be using for your progress. If you'll stay filled up with Jesus, if you'll stay surrendered to the Holy Spirit, if you'll stay fixed on Jesus, and if you will flee temptation. But you will be a target. 
Now, what do you do? Would you like to know how many times in the course of a week or two weeks or a month I get this question? Pastor, can you help me find God's will for my life? Well, can I tell you a place that I like to start with people? I like to start with people right here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Would you look with me in chapter 4 and verse 1? Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. But you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, or can I give you another word, and rightly translated, your holiness. This is God's will for your life. Your holiness. That you abstain, then he goes to a very particular issue. That you abstain from sexual immorality and that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in the passionate, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no one of us transgress, transgress and, and wrong his brother in this matter. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, just as we warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. To disregard this is to grieve the Holy Spirit. To disregard this is to go counter against God's will. God's will for you, as one saved by grace, is through the means of grace to pursue holiness. And specifically, be aware of the encroachment and the destruction of sexual transgression and immorality. To be particularly aware of it. Now that's not because sex in its right place is wrong. On the contrary, sex is a blessed gift of God. To be used as designed by God. To be embraced as designed by God. To be employed with joy for the glory of God. And that's the marriage bed. The sexual act of intimacy is one that initiates a marriage. It recreates a marriage. And God uses it to procreate from a marriage. There it is joyful. Let the marriage bed be held. The marriage bed be held in honor among all. Fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. So I want to abstain from that. I want to, I want to flee from that. And you and I live in a highly, intensely uh, penetrated and saturated sexual... My goodness, we sell cereal with sex on television. Everything is saturated with it. 
I confess to you, I, I like many others, I became a Christian. God called me to ministry. That meant you had to go be a youth pastor. And uh, so I did. And I thank the Lord for it. I have great relationships with some that I've led to, uh, the guys and girls that I've led to Christ as a youth pastor. I had three different youth pastorates, and they were joyful in my life, and I loved them. But my goodness, until I put my arm, uh, I put my arm around our dear youth pastor for every time I get a chance and tell him, my dear brother, I don't know how you do it. You are facing things I never did face, could face, and certainly didn't want to face. And one of those is to know that messages and temptations are headed to the students and covenant children that we have here in elementary ages, in junior high, forget senior high. Things are accessible and you have people with various mechanisms that are working on various ways to reach into the lives of young people in particular every single day. They are absolutely bent on employing the schemes and the snares of Satan, even as servants of Satan. I was just reading recently about how um, eighth graders um, in basic curriculum are usually given an assignment to do a paper on a president. So an entire unbelievably financed pornographic site immediately went to the development of another site and labeled it White House, knowing that would be what these students put into the search engines as they began to do their reports. Now, two clicks away, images and temptations that just can't disappear from the mind without the bathing grace of God over years and years and years. This is the world we live in. Now, we can go put our head in the sand, or we can take it on with the power of God's grace over sin, so that when people have been ensnared in these temptations, we can show them the liberating power of God's grace in the removal of guilt and shame. Through Jesus. And we can show them the power of God's grace for changed lives so glorious that where our greatest failures were can become our greatest successes in life and ministry. God delights in taking those areas where we have faltered and turning those not only into testimonies of forgiveness and grace, but also into powerful works whereby they become areas of strength in our life and ministry in our life by the grace of God. So with that in mind, what I'd like to do is to go back to that passage of Genesis chapter 38 and just see what we can download from this because you're given in this text a couple of vantage points. Now, I need to say one more thing to you. 
Um, I, I also think I'm doing justice to this text to take the time to look at the life of Joseph in addressing this matter of sexual temptation, which he addresses and uh, basically comprehensively and appropriately, although there are two areas I think we can learn from that he omitted, that he should have committed. But, and we'll get there in just a moment, I promise. But you can't miss the setting. Y'all may remember I preached through Genesis over a couple of years. And when we got to Genesis chapter 38, you may remember that morning, that uh, the day before while we were in Genesis 37, next Sunday morning we won't be in 38. I just could not bring myself to handle that material in a Sunday morning setting. I'm not sure whether I was right or wrong to do that, because sometimes I think we bury our heads on these things and, and many of these areas to our detriment. But I decided not to, so people could make some decisions about preparing, and I did it on Sunday night. There were actually two texts in the book of Genesis, two chapters in the book of Genesis I did that uh, I made that decision. Genesis chapter 38 contains one of the most distasteful, discouraging, and despicable text of Scripture that a sovereign God uses for His glory, that He rules and overrules through, rules and overrules through it, and that is the sin, the sins that are described for us with Judah and Tamar. It is, um, it's almost revolting to read it, yet all Scripture is profitable. And it's there for a reason. But what's interesting is on the other side of chapter 38 is chapter 39, where Joseph gives a different outcome. Joseph gives a different story. Joseph gives us some insights that we can draw from. The text that I just read from you, I'm going to ask that you with me look at it from two vantage points. There was a movie that was out not long ago, and I, I waited till I could see the family-friendly version on television. Uh, but it's, it's really an interesting movie. It's called Vantage Point. And it's, uh, an event occurs, and the movie is actually replaying that event seven times as it's seen through seven different vantage points by seven different people. And what they saw, the same event, but what they saw from their perspective. So here is this event that we looked at this morning, looking at stewardship, looking at stewardship uh, in real time in the life of Joseph, how the Lord blessed him as because he got put in positions of stewardship because he lived a life of stewardship before the Lord. And the way he could live a life of stewardship is because of something that's repeated four times. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And then you got a chance to see this majesty of the anticipation of Christ in the life of Joseph through chapter 38. And now this matter of dealing with temptation in general and sexuality in particular to vantage point. The vantage point from Potiphar's wife as a servant of Satan. Isn't it interesting, as I mentioned this morning, and can I do one more thing? This is a matter of ethics for me. There are three, uh, now I, I can't tell you how many uh, 
commentaries I have studied for this. But there are three that particularly were of benefit, and I want to give them credit uh, for helping me out. One was by um, one of my professors, Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, his comment and commentary upon the text, Dr. Jim Boyce and his commentary on Genesis, and then my dear friend Rick Phillips, whom uh, hopefully is going to be here to preach for one of our conferences soon, uh, the pastor of Second Presbyterian, and his commentary on Genesis. Now, those particularly were of help, as well as Kent Hughes' commentary on Genesis. But having done that, what I want you to see is as I dug in, I saw from these two vantage points, first of all, I want you to see something about Satan's bent in temptation, particularly in the area of sexual temptation, as you look at it through Potiphar's wife. So let me give you five things uh, from her. Here's the first thing. Seeing Satan's schemes and servants uh, through this servant part of And again, isn't it interesting? Moses won't even give it. He won't even dignify her with a name. All we're told is she's the wife of Potiphar. The first thing you see is Satan's aspirations, his desires. Look with you. Look with me, if you will, if you will, uh, in um, in chapter thirty nine, and go down, if you would, uh, to verse six. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Well, he should have been concerned about something else, and that was his wife, and what his wife had intentionally. Satan's aspirations manifested through hers. Satan wants to destroy the life and ministry of Joseph. And he does so through the aspirations of Potiphar's wife. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time... His master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and then said, lie with me. Would you like to know how many sins come from temptations that get married to the lust and the temptations are embraced first through the eyes? Now, I'm not going to turn there because I don't have time tonight in in order to cover what I need to give to you. But can I give you the text? It's 1 John chapter 2, and here's what it says. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, or the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. Travel with me back to the garden. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, that it was a delight to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and that it was desirable to make her like God, boastful pride of life, she took from its fruit and she ate. The aspirations were awakened through the eye gate. Do you remember when Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted, the second Adam? And what is it that 
Satan says to him, are you hungry? Lust of the flesh. Then command these stones to become bread. And then he comes to him. And he says to him, are you not the son of man? Cast yourself down. He will catch you from the pinnacle of the temple. The boastful pride of life. And then he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you these. The lust of the eyes. But Jesus in his perfections took these external temptations and brought the word of God by the power of the spirit of God upon him and Satan would flee. But again, look at Satan searching to get to the heart through the eye gate. Make a covenant with your eyes. What do they fall upon? What do they look at? Don't make a deal with yourself about what you watch in the secrets of your life on the computer, the television, the movie screen. What you watch with your eyes on the iPhone. Satan loves to awaken the aspirations for sin out of the eye gate in life. That we must, we must refrain from and we must, we must, uh, um, and we must say no to. Satan inevitably moves by the aspirations of the eye gate to awaken the desires of the body. In sin. Now, look, can I say something else here? I just, there's so much I need to cover and I want to cover because I want, there's so many shoes to drop in something like this. You say, Pastor, but what if I'm a Christian and I get the eye gate, I don't watch it, and then I see something and then it takes root and the aspiration takes hold and then I falter and I fail and I engage in a sinful act of the heart or of the mouth or of the deeds. Can I be forgiven? Absolutely. But folks, listen to me. The wages of sin is death. Now, you may be forgiven. But, and, you, and praise God for the removal of guilt and shame and how God can teach you things through this. But there still can be consequences. I know forgiven men who have lost their marriages. I know forgiven men who have lost their ministries. That you and I do not want to give any. Yes, we know we can be forgiven. But we say no to letting the aspirations be awakened through the casting of our eyes. We make that covenant about what our eyes are going to look upon and what they're not going to look upon. And then we get accountability into our life. One of the things I love is there's an accountability group I've been meeting with for 38 years. And I'd get a phone call when I'd be away doing a conference. And it might be my dear brother Sandy saying, Harry, how is the room? Great. What are you watching on television? Don't you love a friend? Don't you love a friend who's calling you to stay faithful with the eye gate? And then secondly, Satan has his attractions. Satan loves to attract not only 
with the lust of the eyes, but also the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. As he attracted Potiphar's wife, who was willing who was willing to ridicule her husband, willing to, willing to lose a marriage, willing to do anything in order to engage in that great wickedness of sexual immorality. Satan not only brings aspirations and he brings attractions to sin, which, by the way, never deliver. He's always promising this is going to do something and it never delivers. Then Satan loves to be an infiltrator. He loves to infiltrate. He's always probing, looking for the weak point. Look at what he, look at what, look at what this servant of Satan, Potiphar's wife, does. Go, go again with me back to that verse seven. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. What'd he do? He refused. So she quit. Oh, no. She starts probing. Here she begins to probe. And so after a time, she says, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern. Now skip down to verse 10. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, she keeps probing. Day after day, so does Satan keep probing for you. And then she says, not only day after day, but notice she offers, well, here's a way we can begin. You don't have to lie with me, just how about beside me? How about lying beside me? How, uh, and as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Folks, Satan is probing. Can I tell you what he's probing for? Two things. He's probing for where your weakness is. He's trying to find the weakness. Recently, as you know, I enjoy reading history, and I've just gotten fascinated with the Alamo recently, so I've read about four or five books in my, my um, you know, side reading time. And uh, as I've been reading, um, if you ever want some of the titles, I'll give them to you. But one of the things that's abundantly clear, when Santa Anna got to the Alamo, and he looked at those 180 men, and he looked at them trying to defend four acres, and he looked at this... Um, he looked at this church enclave that had been turned into a fortress and was a terrible fortress. He immediately saw the four points of weakness after he did infantry and cavalry reconnaissance and probes. And then he knew where to line up the men for that fateful charge at 530 on that, on that morning, <clears throat> on that Sunday morning. Satan is always probing. Where's your weakness? Do you not give attention to discipleship? Do you not give attention to your Bible? Do you grieve the Spirit? Are you not fortified through the means of grace? He's always probing. Where is the weak point? Is the weak point your family? Is the weak point your pride? Is the weak point our arrogance? Is the weak point... Where is the weak point? 
Just like she kept probing day after day, so Satan does in the area of temptation in general and sexual temptation in particular. And can I tell you one other thing that Satan and his servants do? He not only probes for your weakness, he keeps negotiating for your price. What's your price? What is it that if he promises to give to you, you will give up holiness? He's always probing for the price in your life as well as the weak points. That brings me to that other point, which is really this point. He's always negotiating. What's the price that you're willing to pay? So Satan, through the eye gate, awakens aspirations. Through the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life, he tries to attract us to our sins and to sexual sins. Can't you imagine the ones that must have been working through through um, uh, uh, Joseph's life? Well, nobody will know. And by the way, I'm 20-something years old, for crying out loud. I haven't been around any women hardly at all. I've been in a pit. I've been in prison. I've been in a slave caravan. I mean, hey, boys will be boys. I mean, you know, just so a few oats. I mean, isn't God long-suffering? But, but Joseph said, no, I won't be drawn by aspiration, by attraction. And here, I want to shore up every place so there is no weak point where Satan can gain an advantage. The Lord is with me. And I will not negotiate a price for sin. There will be no peace treaties with sin. And finally, Satan's always ready for adaptation. Here she makes her big move on him. Because nobody's around. This is her moment. And then at that moment, Joseph leaves rapidly. And as he leaves, the garment that he's wearing is left behind. And he quickly moves away. And she sees he's gone, but I've got the garment. And it doesn't take her but a moment to concoct a story. She can't get him, but she could ruin him. She could cost him his job. She could make fun of him to the other slaves. She could ruin the trust that her husband would have in him. And she is so quick. I said it this morning. Let me say it again. Folks, if you think you can outthink Satan, you forget it. We can't outthink him and his servants. He's quicker than us. Well, Pastor, if I can't outthink him, what do I do? Live the wisdom of God. Don't try to outthink him. Don't try to outmaneuver him. Stay in the means of grace. Stay filled up with the grace of God. Flee temptation. And fix your eyes on Jesus. I can't give you a formula to outmaneuver Satan. And I can't promise you an IQ that you can outthink him. 
But what I can promise you is God's grace and the means of grace is sufficient. If you're filled up with Jesus, flee temptation and fix your eyes upon the Savior. Now, I've only got just a few moments. Oh, my goodness, I don't even have a few moments. Can I just give you this? And, and would you grant me just these five minutes? It's just three of them I want you to see from Joseph's vantage point. Here is number one. And I've kind of referred to them so I don't have to take. Joseph intentionally uh, makes a declaration that obviously requires his preparation. Joseph is prepared. Now, why do I say he's prepared? Well, when she makes this move, he says to her, when she begins to try to entrap him, she, he says to her four, he says to her five things. He says, I cannot sin against my master. I cannot sin against your marriage. I cannot sin against you. I cannot sin against God. And this is a sin of great wickedness. This is a sin of, Harry, isn't all sin equal? No, not in effect. All sin rightly calls for the judgment of God in thought, word, or deed. But sins have greater consequences. This one would destroy a marriage, would destroy a witness, would destroy, uh, would destroy uh, a man's uh, position. It would destroy all of those things. This, he sees it for what it is, a sin of great wickedness. How does Joseph know that? Because whatever they have in the patriarchs at this point to know the will of God, he knows it. And he knows this is a sin against God. He knows it would be a sin against Potiphar, who has entrusted everything to him. He knows it would be a sin against the doctrine of marriage. He knows it would be a sin against the woman who is trying to ensnare him. And he knows this sin is of great wickedness and consequences. In other words... To some degree, somehow, he's been discipled and ready for this. Secondly, Joseph then goes public with his declaration. He says to her, and my guess he says it out loud. When he says it out loud, I don't think he's just talking to her. I think he's talking to himself. I cannot sin against God. I cannot sin against my master. I cannot sin against marriage. I cannot sin against you. And I cannot do this great wickedness. He plants his flag. He states it publicly. He declares where his allegiance and affections are. He declares where his intentions are. He makes it a declaration of where he ought to be. You and I are not to be silent about our sin. We are not to make light of sin. You and I are not honoring God's grace by making slight sins, shame, and effects. We are actually diminishing God's grace. That's why Joseph says, this is a great wickedness. This will have great effects. And I cannot sin against God. I cannot sin against you. I cannot sin against my master. And I cannot sin against what God has ordained marriage to be. You are not mine. I have responsibility for all that my master has given to me. But he has not given me you because he can't give me you. You are his and he is yours. 
And he knows the doctrine of marriage. He knows the doctrine of sin. He knows the doctrine of holiness. And then he makes it public. He makes it as a declaration. John and Sandy and Shelton and I got together 36, 37 years ago. I don't know how long it's been. And we made 10 commitments and we publicized them to our session and eventually to our churches. One of them was this. If any one of us ever violate our marriage vows, the other three will labor with all of our heart to restore you to your marriage. We will also make sure that you leave the ministry and can never return. Now, Pastor, do you believe that people who fall into sexual sins that are ministers can't be restored? I did not say that. Here's what we said. We can't. And that was not a statement of strength. That was a statement letting you know how weak we are. We wanted to publicly get it on record. Our privilege to be in the ministry was opening the door only one time. And we were telling ourselves, when you begin to contemplate unfaithfulness to your marriage vows, when you begin to sell yourself unfaithfulness, remember, it'll cost you, may cost you your marriage, but it will cost you the ministry. We'll see to it. That was a statement not of strength, it was one of weakness. And it went along with nine others that we were going to be public on. And that would hold us accountable to what we we knew that. And here's something else I know. Listen, folks, if I can lie to my dear wife who has given so much for me to serve him. It would be a piece of cake to stand in a pulpit and lie to people. So what we were doing was not extraordinary. It was declaring our own awareness of our weaknesses. Therefore, you remember something. If you decide to walk away from your marriage vows, your ministry's done. That's one cost for sure. And it's public. That'll be a cost. And secondly, we are aware that if a man cannot be faithful to his wife, there is no way he can faithfully care for the bride of Christ. So my friends, Joseph was prepared for his declaration. He made public his declaration. And then let me give you one third thing, a third thing that he did. When the time came and she made her big and final move, he engaged in immediate evacuation. That's one of the smartest things in the world to do. Flee temptation. Don't try 
to resist it. Nowhere in the Bible does it tell you to resist. The Bible tells you to stand firm in the day of the battle. The Bible tells you to take captive every thought unto the obedience of Christ. But in terms of temptation, because you've got a sin, you've got the remnant of a sin nature inside of you and the temptation outside of you. And James says when that temptation outside gets married to this remnant of sin inside, the child is sin and the product of sin is death. So what do you do? Kill the, kill the old man inside and flee the temptation outside. I am not a rocket scientist, but if I get rid of both parents, the child can't be born. Sin cannot be produced. So flee temptation, kill the old man, and then know that you... Listen to me. Know this. Satan's schemes, servants, and snares... You can't handle them. Not only can you not outthink him, you can't handle them. It's, it is wrong-headed arrogance to stay in the way of temptation. Flee it. Flee it. Just say to yourself, I can't handle this. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. But that one that's in the world, he's greater than me. So I'm going to flee to Jesus and I'm going to flee temptation. I'm going to go to Jesus and I'm going to flee temptation. That's what I'm going to do with the iPhone, with the computer, with the magazines, with the movies, with all of those things in a relationship. I want to get it made clear when that dating courting time comes. Y'all handle how you do that as parents. We're going to talk about that this summer. But right now, I'm just saying you handle it the way you're going to handle it as parents. But one thing you want your par- your kids to do is in relationships, declare themselves and declare what's expected and declare what can't happen. And don't think you can handle those moments alone. Don't think that you can handle the moments apart from observation and accountability. Say no to arrogance. I can handle this. Say yes to humility. I'm going to flee this. And then pursue holiness. Can I read you one final thing? Just in closing, Genesis 41. I want to leave you with some encouragement. There's a lot more I'd love to say on this. I'm out of time. But this is a man in real time looking at it from the vantage point of Potiphar's wife. Looking at it from the vantage point of Joseph's actions. And uh, so look at it in real time. I want to show you one more thing. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis 41 to encourage you as you leave here. And go pick up your children. Genesis 41. Uh, go down, if you would, to verse, uh, verse 37. He's now a steward over everything in Egypt. And he's going to be installed. Here's what happens. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? How did, I'm back to this again. How did Pharaoh know he had the Holy Spirit? I'll tell you how he knows he got the Holy Spirit. Joseph told him. That's how he knows. Joseph is making things public.
And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in a garment of fine linen. Uh Uh-oh, he got another garment now. Praise the Lord. And he put a a gold chain about his neck and he made him ride in the second chariot you see what's happening he gives him a signet ring he gives him a royal garment and he gives him air force two and then what does he say he says and then he called out before him bow the knee thus he set him over all the land of egypt moreover pharaoh said to joseph i am pharaoh and without your consent no one shall lift up a hand or a foot in all the land of egypt and pharaoh called joseph's name zephanath paniah and he gave him in marriage asenath and he gave him in marriage asenath the daughter of potipharah priest of on so joseph went out over the land of egypt okay i'm going to do just a, if i'm reading too much in forgive me i'll give you room to say here you're reading too much in potipharah who is potipharah i don't have the slightest idea but why would moses who won't even tell you the name of the wife of potiphar give you the name of joseph's wife And the woman who would take him, now, I think, likely had to stand with her husband while Pharaoh paraded him. And this is something called assonance. Thank you, Sinclair Ferguson. This is something called assonance. What's dissonance? Two sounds that don't go together, right? Assonance. Potiphar, Potiphera. He's letting you know the wife of Potiphar did not have the last word. God had the last word. Likely, Potiphar, with his wife, probably had to stand on the parade where he is brought in on the second chariot. Wonder how that felt. And then he gets a wife from the man called Potiphera. That's calling your attention to something. Put your eyes on the Lord. Be faithful to the Lord. He will uphold his people. Just remember, I can't handle it. I can't outthink it. But my God is able. Well, folks, it's with really fear and trepidation. My goodness, what a life, the life of Joseph, and what we've been able to learn about fleeing temptation and and dealing with the issue of sexual temptation. But if I could be so bold, I think there are two things, as I promised you, two things that Joseph didn't do that I would encourage you to add to what we've learned to do from his life concerning fleeing temptation in general and sexual temptation in particular. Let me give you the first one. Uh, The first time that uh, Potiphar's wife came and tried to bring him to sin, he said, no, I will not. And he made this glorious speech. I won't sin against God, my master. I won't sin against marriage. I won't sin against you. I won't do this great wickedness. Uh, But then the Bible tells us that she kept 
she kept um, finding ways to come into his life. As we said, that's Satan probing. What's your price? What is it that you would sell your holiness for? What's the price? Where Where's a weak spot? Well, I think that Joseph thought with such a ringing declaration of rejection and the speech he gave, it was a done deal. Folks, with Satan, it's never a done deal. He is always probing, always trying to find the weak spot. It's not you make a statement, you turn from sin, and he's done. Nope, he's never won and done. He always comes back, just as he did in this, in the, just as he did in the life of uh, Joseph. And then secondly and finally, Joseph, uh, if I may say boldly, but, uh, but also carefully, Joseph should never have allowed himself to be alone with her. You know, that's one of the reasons we have, uh, we put uh, windows in all the offices of our pastors. Not that we don't trust them, it's that we're trying to protect them. That's why we've got a standing requirement that you do not, uh, you do not spend time alone with another, uh, with a woman and, or a man, if you're a woman, in a relationship of a meal and privacy, etc. We just don't allow it. Uh, now, we're criticized for that for, by many people and for many reasons. But I want to make sure that we avoid temptation by fleeing it. And we, if we can take some steps that will help us, I call them, I call them stepping stones to righteousness when they are obstacles to sin. And so being there with her alone set up her opportunity for false accusations. So I would encourage you, never get in such a situation like that. It's always good to have witnesses with you, accountability with you, and those who can uphold you. Well, that's what I want to encourage you with. In those two things from the life of Joseph that were undone, I would encourage you to make sure they are part of our our approach to dealing with sin, fleeing temptation, and fleeing sexual temptation. Never, never think Satan is one and done. And never, never enter into the battle alone. Always have those witnesses and brothers and sisters around you to encourage you. Your band of brothers and your circle of sisters. Well, that's what we want to share. Let's spend some time in prayer before the Lord, asking God to speak to our hearts. Father, thank you for the time we could be together. Thank you for the privilege to be in your word. Would you bless us as a people as we seek in a culture that would envelop us with the immorality of sexual anarchy to embrace the gift in marriage and seek to be faithful in you and publicly tell the world Here's where we are as we flee temptation, kill the old man, and fix our eyes on the God who is with us, Jesus. In whose name I pray, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.